I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. When Serena Williams quit professional tennis earlier this year, she was clearly uncomfortable with the idea. In a press conference, she used words like evolve away from tennis, and she wrote in Vogue magazine that she'd been so reluctant to move away from tennis that she'd barely discussed it with her husband. It's like a taboo topic, she confided in the magazine. Now, this may look familiar to our guest, who researches why more people don't quit and who encourages people to quit more often. Annie Duke, who quit a career path in academics to play professional poker, writes in the prologue to her new book, We view grit and quit as opposing forces. After all, you either persevere or you abandon course. You can't do both at the same time, and in the battle between the two, quitting has clearly lost. This is a show about why more of us should quit and the powerful psychology and social forces that prevent that. Annie Duke's career includes research into cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania, the championship of the World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions, and the publication of a number of books, including Thinking in Bets. Her new book is titled Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away, and she joins us from near Philadelphia. Welcome. It's a pleasure to talk to you. I think it's the first time I've ever interviewed you. So this is a real pleasure to have you on. Yeah, I think this is the first time we've chatted, Carrie. So I'm, I'm super excited for this. So I don't know if you followed very closely what Serena Williams said as she announced that she I was... I did. Okay, I did. good, good. So you know yeah. she, this evolving away from tennis. And then I read the Vogue article that she wrote. And, and I just want to share something else that she wrote in that piece. There is no happiness in this topic for me. I know it's not the usual thing to say, but I feel a great deal of pain. It's the hardest thing that I could ever imagine. I hate it. I hate that I have to be at this crossroads. Serena Williams on a very difficult decision. What do you read between the lines of what she's saying there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think the, well, first of all, I mean, what I read is she really loves tennis. Let's just start with that. Um, this happened with Liz, Lindsay Vaughn as well, where the idea of quitting is so awful to us for a variety of reasons. There's a lot of forces working against us viewing quitting as a positive thing that we don't even like to name it. We don't like to call it quitting. Um, it gets kind of like I, I say the Voldemort treatment, mm-hmm. like that that shall not be named. So, as you said, Serena said, you know, I'm evolving. This was the way that she kind of described it in order to make it, I think, more palatable for herself. Lindsay Vaughn, who was, uh, you know, maybe the greatest, you know, female American skier of all time. Um, when she quit, she made an announcement on Instagram where she was talking about her body being broken and it was yelling at her to stop. And she she was going to leave professional skiing. So that's clearly she's saying she's retiring, which is a form of quitting. And then she said, but for all my fans out there, I'm not quitting. (laughs) I am starting a new chapter. So it's like, whoa, what's going on there? Like, she's so worried that people, that her fans are going to see her as being a quitter, um, that she might think of herself as a quitter, that she has to wrap it in this euphemism, which is starting a new chapter. And in the case of Serena Williams, it would be evolving. 
And I, I think this is interesting. You'll, you'll see this like on Twitter where people are sort of recommending, like there was recently a thread where someone was recommending to graduate students that if they were miserable, um, that they should think about doing something else. But then she said, but I'm not telling you to quit. <laughs> It's like, no, but you are like, I, but what is wrong with that word? Why, why this, do we have all of these euphemisms around it? Because we so want to sort of tiptoe around saying the thing. And that's really what I'm trying to explore in the book, because the fact is that there's all sorts of situations under which quitting is actually clearly the right choice for Lindsay Vaughn. It absolutely was. She, her body couldn't take it anymore. In that case, you obviously shouldn't continue. Uh, same thing for Serena Williams, who wasn't finding the success that she wanted to find anymore. And, and she was suffering through a lot of injuries. Um, and so, you know, there's a case where it seems like it's pretty obvious that quitting seems like a very reasonable choice, particularly for someone like Serena Williams and Lindsey Vaughn, where you certainly can't question their grit. Right. You can't say that they're weak willed or somehow couldn't hack it or didn't have the metal, um, you know, and, and if you're in a toxic job, you should quit. If you're in a toxic relationship, you should quit. If you get a concussion on the football field, you should walk off the field. You shouldn't keep playing. Uh, but we don't want to say it and we don't want to do it. And and that's why I wrote the book. It, ju just a note here on Lindsay Vaughn, because I've got your book open to that, that part yeah. of it. She says, my body is broken beyond repair and it mm -hmm. isn't letting me have the final season I dreamed of. My body is screaming at me to stop. And it's time for me to listen. Like you say, nobody would question a decision after all the other comebacks that she had, that she is being wise here, right? That's right. But but she refuses to say she's quitting. I, you know, I think partly for fear that uh, people will see her as a quitter. But also she says for my fans out there, right? Like she doesn't want them to quit either. Right. Um, but wouldn't you want someone to quit in the situation that Lindsay Vaughn is in? <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder if what we're seeing, and, and you write about this, what we're seeing are two highly accomplished women really wrestling with what their identity is going to be in the, in the quote unquote next chapter, right? After their athletic careers. Is that it? When we look at the forces that bias us against quitting, and they are many. I mean, that's why this book is not an article. <laughs> um, that's why it's a book, because uh, there are a lot of them. One of the strongest forces that make it very hard for us to quit is identity. The way that our identity gets wrapped up in in uh, the things that we do, which would be the case with Serena and Lindsay Vaughn, but also the things that we believe. Because let's remember, it, we, we don't just quit stuff that we're doing. We can also quit our beliefs. We can decide that we don't believe that thing anymore, right? So um, I assume you once believed that Pluto was a planet and you have now quit that belief. <laughs> right, because right. that's what science says, yes. Exactly. So, so you know, the fact is I, I have a chapter that's called Identity and Other Impediments mm -hmm. because identity is such a huge impediment to quitting because it really is the case that when you walk away from something that is so integral to who you are, that you are quitting a piece of yourself or maybe uh, the main part of your identity, right? And we sort of forget that we can, that who we are isn't what we do. And that when we walk away, we'll find another identity. Um, but it's hard for us to kind of see that. And 
And this is so much so that, you know, there's a really famous um, study that was done back in the 1950s by Leon Festinger. And he wrote a book called When Prophecy Fails back then, mm-hmm. uh, which I highly recommend that people read. It's, it's quite small. It's really kind of a monograph. Um, so it's a quick read, but I think uh, it would be very insightful for people to understand the way that like what you're talking about with, with Serena Williams, but also what we're talking about in the case of this Festinger work really relates in a lot of ways to some of what we see in our politics today in terms of our ability to quit things. So he saw a, a notice in a local newspaper about a cult that was called the Seekers. It was founded by a woman named Marion Keach. Uh, and what the Seekers believed is that... Um, uh, aliens from the planet Clarion had been looking at Earth. They were quite disappointed in uh, humans. Uh, they decided that we were, um, you know, evil and that they needed to wipe out the planet. So they were going to come on the night of December 20th in 1954, the aliens. Uh, they were going to rescue the true believers. And the true believers were the members of the Seekers. And everybody else was going to be uh, wiped out in a flood. So this is, you know, very typical doomsday cult, right? But what's interesting about a doomsday cult and the reason why Festinger got interested in it was because there's a day of mm. the doom, <laughs> right? Like they, they've predicted a day that this thing is going to happen. And so what Festinger wanted to know was, well, what happens when that day comes and the aliens don't arrive and the flood doesn't happen? Because for him, the thing that he wanted to understand was, look, we have this intuition, that when we believe something, when there's incontrovertible proof that that thing we believe isn't true anymore, uh, that will, you know, we have this intuition that obviously like we're going to, well, you told me Pluto wasn't a planet. So obviously I'm not going to believe it anymore. But what he said was when you have these beliefs that are very much integral to who you are, mm-hmm. that maybe that's not, that's not what would happen. Maybe you would actually uh, protect who you are and reject the facts. So he uh, sort of infiltrated the cult. Um, and so he was there at midnight when the aliens were supposed to come. The clock struck midnight. No aliens came, obviously. There was no flood. And you know what? The cult didn't disband. Of course not. Not only did they not disband, <laughs> they doubled down. So the people who even, there was this one woman, uh, Chloe Armstrong, who had been kind of lukewarm. Like she was in the cult, but she wasn't, you know, she sort of recognized that there were people who were like prank calling the cult where, uh, you know, saying predictions from the planet and that maybe the other cult members are kind of gullible and believing them. So she like believed it, but she was pretty lukewarm. After this event happened, she becomes like a complete zealot. She starts preaching to all the press. And even nine months later, she finds herself on a, a ramp at a hotel garage parking lot waiting for the aliens to come again based on a new prediction. So, you know, what's going on here is that when you think about when you join a cult, that is your identity. Like you, you have this very extreme belief system that other people don't have. You've probably cut yourself off from your family. You've given away all of your worldly goods. So like, if that's not true, who you are, you like, what does that mean for who you are? So his point was that when that kind of dissonance occurs, when the world is so in conflict with who you are, it's really, really hard to give up who you are. And you'll generally kind of want to reject the facts. And that's what we can see in Serena Williams is that the facts on the ground are clearly saying um, you can't continue, right? Like it's, it's putting, it's putting your body in danger. 
this is not what you should do anymore, but she's really struggling with that because she doesn't want to hear what the world has to tell her. It's too hard when we have to give up who we are. You know, I think you alluded to this a few minutes ago that we're also living in a political culture that mm-hmm. that we find people are it's very difficult for people whose identities are wrapped up in what they think they believe politically to be able to then take in facts that are dissonant or in conflict with what belonging to that group says you must believe. I mean, I'm really talking Mm -hmm. around this, but I think the big lie, Trump's lies about what happened with the election, we're seeing this, you know, roll out in real time, aren't we? So, yeah, when we think about like political identity, there's sort of two things that we can think about. One is belongingness, right? So we belong to a group and it gives us a sense of belongingness. And the other, though, and this has become much more of a powerful force in today's politics is distinctiveness, mm. meaning that our because we're in this group, we're distinct from other groups. So here's where uh, the worrisome, sci- there's some worrisome science here, which is that it turns out that the more extreme the belief you hold, which then obviously creates more distinctiveness, right? You're more distinct from what other people believe. Uh, the less likely you are to quit it when you get new information hmm. that would tell you that you ought to. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because again, the more distinct that belief is from what other people believe, the more it becomes part of your identity. So if we go back to the simple example of you once believed that Pluto was a planet, um, why were you so easily able to give that up? Because everybody believed that. Right. 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 It's not like Carrie's identity is Pluto planet believer. Like it's <laughs> like whatever. Like everyone believes Pluto a planet. I'm going along with the crowd here. Who cares? They told me it wasn't. I don't really care. But what you can see is when you have an, a belief that's very extreme, like you're a flat earther. Now, you know, not only are you sort of part of a community of flat earthers, but it also really creates a distinctiveness from other people. I believe something very different than what the consensus is. Mm-hmm. So even when we show you, uh, you know, all sorts of different evidence that tells you that the earth is indeed not flat, um, you will cling to that belief. Now, this isn't just about like, um, you know, members of cults or flat earthers or, or people in QAnon. Like this is true for all of us. So Katie Milkman and John Brashears um, did a study on stock analysts. And we assume that stock analysts would be pretty rational. They probably have uh they do have uh, the right incentives in line for them to be accurate in their analysis and their forecast. It's what they get paid for. And basically they looked at 6,000 earnings estimates from uh, analysts and they divided the earning estimates into two categories. Category one was these are estimates that are well within consensus, right? So, you know, when you look at sort of analysis across wall street, uh, everybody kind of agrees on the est- the earnings estimate for this particular company. Okay, so those would be consensus. And then they had ones that were out of consensus, that were extreme, that were really standing out from the crowd. Um, and then what they said was, well, let's look what happens when the actual earnings come in and they don't support the original forecast. Do the, the analysts then update their forecast for the next quarter? So it turned out that when the analysts were making uh forecasts that were in consensus 
and the earnings estimates came in and they didn't support the forecast, they would update their forecast, just like you updated your belief about Pluto. Mm -hmm. So that's great. But when they were making these extreme predictions, the ones that really stood out from the crowd that were non-consensus and the earnings estimates came in and they didn't support that original forecast, they doubled down. They escalated their commitment to that forecast. They did not change their mind. So this is something that's true across for all of us, right? And the thing is that we're all, you know, we, we can all set up this like cult-like behavior for us. We're all kind of in some sort of cult. And the problem is it's just really hard to get somebody to change their mind or abandon a belief or walk away from that group once they're in a group that's that's identity defining. And I think that that's why we're all so frustrated, right? We're also frustrated. We're like, what about this fact? What about what the court said? <laughs> right. What about the recounts? What about... Um, you know, uh, the evidence that, um, uh, you know, the evidence that I can look at the video and I can see there weren't any ballots, suitcases full of ballots that were under a chair that somebody pulled out of it. It's literally, <laughs> we can look at what happened right. and you're saying, well, why aren't they, why isn't anybody rejecting the beliefs then? And I think this is why. And I think the thing that we need to realize for ourselves is that we look at that and we can see it really clearly, but we have to understand there's ways, not in that big a way, but there's ways in which we do that ourselves as well. One more question about identity and quitting. You write in that chapter, when you quit, you're closing a mental account. And we know that we don't like to close those accounts in the losses. I mean, are are you saying there that, you know, I have this known identity, and I'm pretty invested mm -hmm. in this identity. And it's f frightening and confusing to th try to think about what my identity will be after I've closed this account on this identity. A little, yeah. So let's take like the simplest version of in the losses. Uh -huh. um, and then we can sort of you know, keep going with it, right? So the simplest version would be, I bought a stock at 50, it's now trading at 40. Um, I have not just an, an account on my ledger, but I've opened up a mental account for that stock. Uh, so I've got a mental ledger going on and the stock is in the losses, right? It's down 40, it's down 10 rather. And so if I close that account at that moment, that means that I have to take the loss. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's that's like a very easy way to understand what it means not to want to close accounts in the losses. Um, and we can see that there. I don't want to close the account while it's in the losses. But we can take that a step further to realize that um, what it means to be in the losses is really a cognitive phenomenon. So let's now take it to the next step, which is I buy a stock at 50, it gets up to 75, but then it goes back down to 60. On my physical ledger, I'm in the gains, right? I bought it at 50 and it's trading at 60. I'm up $10, mm -hmm. but not on my mental ledger. On my mental ledger, my high point was 75. It's now trading at 60. I'm losing $15. Oh, so I'm in the losses yeah. on my mental ledger. So I won't want to quit there. Okay, so here's where we can see like this idea of in the losses becomes very problematic, right? Because there's all sorts of cognitive ways for us to be in the losses. Um, so now let's take it to the next level. Um, I'm running a marathon and I've run 16 miles, but uh, the medical tent tells me I'm very dehydrated and that I ought to quit. Um, I won't want to quit because even though, again, I'm 16 miles farther than I started, mm -hmm. uh, 
I happen to be 10.2 miles short Mm -hmm. of the finish line. And so mentally I will feel like I'm in the losses and I won't want to quit. And we know that people will continue running in those situations all the time, sometimes um, ending up in the hospital. So now let's take it to this problem. Um, in the losses can just mean like you feel like you lost the time that you put into something. You're, you you uh, lost your identity or uh, that's the moment that um, you admit that you've made a mistake. So, so those kinds of things can feel like losses to us, like the loss of identity, uh, the loss of credibility or the loss of consistency. We want to see ourselves as consistent over time. And if we quit, uh, that makes us feel like we will, uh, both for ourselves and for the way that other people view us, that we won't be consistent. And so that feels like taking a loss to us. And we don't like to do that. So this is just a very powerful, it, uh, this concept comes from Richard Thaler, who won, won, you know, is a Nobel laureate in economics. Um, this idea of being in the losses is a, is really kind of across as if you look at all the reasons that people don't quit, this becomes an umbrella to all of that. Wow. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to my Friday book show, and I'm in conversation with Annie Duke. Uh, she's done research into cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. She's been a world champion poker, professional poker player. And we're talking about her new book, Quit the Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. I'd like you to talk a bit about your own experience in quitting academics for a while. And I thought I remembered hearing you on a podcast with Dr. Maya Shanker, and I... Yes. Okay, I think I remember you saying that you, at one point, you thought your former colleagues in academics were disappointed in you because you'd, mm-hmm. you'd gone this different direction, and you you kind of purposely lost touch with them because you just didn't want to experience their disappointment, which ended up not being true, but do I remember that right? You do absolutely remember that right. Um, So, uh, you know, when I was talking about just a second ago, like this idea of wanting to be seen as consistent, Mm -hmm. yeah, um, not wanting to feel like you made a mistake, that's true both both internally for us, but it's also true uh, in the way that we imagine other people might view us. Um, So we really want validation from other people. Mm. And because of our bias against quitting, what we imagine is that other people will not validate that act in the same way that we don't really validate it for ourselves. So what happened to me was I did five years worth of PhD work at the University of Pennsylvania. I was out on the job market. Actually, that's how far along I was. Um, And I got sick. And I ended up in the hospital for a couple of weeks and it was very clear that I just couldn't, I couldn't go do my job talks and somehow like start a new job in the spring or rather in the fall. And so I was going to have to take a year off. So, uh, so I go to take a year off and that's when I started playing poker. This was back in the nineties. Um, and I obviously fell in love with it. Uh, I was good at it and I kept doing it and it was easy for me to lose touch with people because this was before texting and, you know, people didn't have cell phones and uh, email wasn't what it was now and instant messaging and so on and so forth. And so, you know, when you moved, you changed the numbers back then. So um, they just kind of didn't have my number. And, you know, I mean, this is a moment of great shame for me. I felt like I had 
incredibly, like just very much let them down. That was from my part, uh-huh. right? That I had let them down. And I felt like they must be just incredibly disappointed in me, incredibly ashamed of me. And no one they, said uh, you know, this to you. This is just what you believe. No, not a soul. Okay. Yeah. This is just what I believed. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and I thought they've put so much time into me and now, I, now I've now i abandoned what they put time into me for and I've wasted their time. <laughs> wow. Um, uh-huh. And, you know, so anyway, so I, I go off and I play poker and then I retired from a game in 2012 and moved back to the East Coast. And I was in, uh, back to uh, near Philadelphia, in fact. And I was I was in a doctor's office and I, I look over and there's this woman sitting there and it's Lila Gleitman, who is my mentor, who's an amazing human. Um, and I said, oh, you know, and so I, I just went over and I sat next to her and I said, hello. Took up a lot of nerve, right? Because... I was expecting her to be really mad at me and not want to talk to me. This <laughs> yeah. was like, even it was like two decades later. Years still later. Like she's never gonna talk to me. Yeah. And she just, you know what? Her face just lit up and she was, it's just like total joy on her face. Um, she was in her early eighties at this point and uh, you know, we exchanged information. And from that day forward, we saw each other every, every week and until the pandemic, when we talked on the phone, she just actually passed last year. And um, I got a whole decade of once a week with Lila Gleitman, who is an amazing human. And the sadness for me was that I didn't get the other two decades with her Mm -hmm. because I felt so much shame around quitting. And it turned out that, you know, because we had very direct conversations with it, including a final conversation in the hospital a few days before she died, where, you know, I said, you know, and I told her, I said, I felt. I, I just like, I'm so sorry that we lost touch. Cause I felt, I just felt so much shame. And I felt, I, I just felt like you must be so disappointed in me and you must hate me for what I did. And she just said, it couldn't be farther from the truth. I was so happy watching what your career ended up being. I was sad that I wasn't a part of it, but um, I would never feel that because the whole point of what you do is to go find happiness. And if you found happiness doing something else and success doing something else as a mentor, why would I ever be? Why would I ever be ashamed of you? She's wise. Why would I ever be mad at you? That doesn't make any sense. And I mean, it just, first of all, it shows you the quality of human mm-hmm. that Lila is. Yeah. But it also shows us, and this is, you know, there's other stories that I tell um, of people who really do like make these things up in their head. And it turns out that uh, when you actually have a conversation with the person who you're thinking is going to judge you so harshly that they actually didn't judge you that harshly at all. And they're just happy for you that you found a different thing to do. You know, what strikes me about that, too, is how the power of your conviction that you really understood this and how right. I mean, there's a lesson. There's so many lessons in this, but th- that's something that I've thought a lot about that. Don't be so sure that the story you tell yourself with great conviction is true. And that's, that, that's, uh, that's hard to get around, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, but I think that this is really common. So, you know, I talked to this woman, Sarah Olson Martinez, who's an, she was an EDR doc, um, and she was also a hospital administrator, and she was really struggling with a quitting right. decision as well. Yeah, it's an interesting and story. Yeah. And when I asked her why, one of the reasons that she gave was that she was worried that um, her supervisors would be really disappointed in her. Like they had promoted her a few times into this administrative position, 
that they were going to, they were going to really judge her harshly. This was something that was stopping her from quitting and um, that the other ER docs were going to think she was, as in her words, a wuss that she couldn't hack it. <laughs> like it's kind of like in the Navy SEALs among mm -hmm. ER docs, there's kind of a culture of grit, right? Mm -hmm. Don't ring the bell. We know it's hard, but that's what makes us special. Like if we go back to the idea of the seekers, right? It's like what makes us distinct from other people is our ability to do these shifts in the ER under pressure, uh, really seeing humanity in, in its darkest moments uh, and being mentally tough and physically tough and being able to power through that. It's, it's part of the culture. And so she thought that they were going to really judge her harshly for that as well. And she was really miserable. I mean, miserable to the point where when I asked her what the chances are, she was going to be happy in a year if she stayed in her job, she said 0%. Jeez. So she's miserable, but she's not walking away because of the way that she thinks that other people will judge her. Other mm. people will feel about her. And when she finally does quit, I, I, I did check in with her and she said they were happy for her. In fact, her supervisors, far from being disappointed, felt like they may have let her down. Because uh, they didn't support her well enough in that job to help her find happiness. So it was really actually quite the opposite of, um, you know, of what she of what she imagined for herself. I think this is also a good moment to talk about Ron Conway. What an interesting example of this. So he's a venture capitalist and he's a quitting coach. And for as as astute of, of an investor as he is, it sounds like he's really invaluable as someone who can help startup founders decide when it's time to quit. We, we Tell us about him. Yeah. So Ron Conway is the founder of SB Angel. He's one of the most successful uh, angel investors of all time. You know, I mean, it, it's like the list is ridiculous. It's like, you know, Facebook, Uber. <laughs> if you if you think of like a really big successful company, he was probably an angel investor in it. So, you know, this is a case where, you know, I think that that you would think that his great pride would come from like these big successful companies that he helped to fund. Right. Uh, you know, and and I think that you know, certainly some of some of that is true. Um he's certainly proud of that, no doubt. Um, you know, and I think you would also think that uh for somebody who's an investor in that type of company, that a lot of what they're trying to do is help the founders to grit it out. Because we know that when you are when you have a startup, there's lots of uncertainty, there's going to be lots and lots of ups and downs, uh, moments where you feel like you're on the brink of failure, and then you somehow pull it out. And that's kind of the way that we think about it. And so we would imagine that somebody in his position would be helping someone to stick it out, to stick through the hard times, and that that would be what he kind of considered his main job to be. But it's actually quite the opposite. What he really prides himself on is getting people to shut things down when it's right. Because the, the thing is that the first thing that you need to remember is that somebody who who decides to start a business is probably gritty by nature. Mm. So, uh, and this is true actually of kind of adults in general, but um, if you're gritty by nature, you don't really have to coach someone to stick it out. Partly, Partly for all the reasons that we've said, right? Like if you're a, a startup, that means you're a founder, that's your identity. You have a lot uh, invested in the endeavor. You have put time and effort. You've convinced investors that you are worth investing in. You have convinced really smart, talented people to come work for you for very little cash comp in exchange for equity that you're telling them is worthwhile. Like, Think about how 
much debris there is <laughs> that was going to stop you from walking away from that kind of situation, that feeling of letting your employees down, of, of how are your investors going to view you? Are they going to look to you as a failure? That, that feeling that, well, if I keep going, maybe I can turn it around and I don't have to be a failed founder, right? Which is like that really hard moment going from like, it's not going well to actually shutting it down and giving up the cause. Like that there's so many cognitive headwinds to making that type of decision. And so Conway recognizes like he doesn't have to help people figure out how to stick it out. They're already doing that for themselves too much. What he wants to do is help people try to figure out how to walk away when he sees that the endeavor that they're working on is no longer worthwhile. So the way that he handles this is uh, he goes to the founder, you know, and he'll say, look, it looks like things aren't going that well. And the founder will always inevitably say, I know I can turn it around. <laughs> that happens 100% of the time. Really? Nobody's like, oh, thank God you said that. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm out of here, right? All right? So he's like, oh, I know I can turn it around. So the interesting thing that Conway does that I think is so smart is he doesn't then say to them, no, I'm telling you right now, you should shut it down. Because like he recognizes just like people who are rejecting facts about the election or just like the seekers uh, rejected, you know, the fact that the the aliens didn't come or the stock analysts rejected the the new information they had in the earnings that they're going to reject his advice here because they don't want to have to live that moment of admitting failure. It's too hard for us. So instead he says, okay, like I agree you can turn it around, but first of all, let's just put on the table that you're incredibly smart. You're incredibly gritty and life's too short for you to be spending time on something that isn't actually going to change the world, which is, I know what you want to do. So let's just like get that to be agreed upon. So they agree to that, right? Because we do have a very limited time on this planet. And every minute that we spend on something that isn't worthwhile is time that we can't spend doing something that is worthwhile. And that is such a shame when we don't have very much of that resource, that precious resource of time. So he says, look, you're brilliant. Your life is too short to spend time on something that isn't worthwhile. So let's let's set a deadline. So he'll say like, okay, so let's say that uh, we're going to be able, we're going to we're going to stick this out for another quarter, and so they'll agree to that. And he'll say, "All right, in a quarter, what does turning it around look like?" So that might be measured in like net new revenue. Maybe that gets measured in progress on product development. Maybe it gets measured in finding product market fit whatever the things are that are particular to that organization, but he does it collaboratively with the founder. So mm -hmm. they figure out, look, we're going to do this for three more months. At the end of three months, here are the benchmarks that we're agreeing would signal that you have actually turned it around. And now let's agree right now that in three months, we're going to revisit. And if you've hit the benchmarks, great. I'm happy. You're happy. You're going to continue to go along. But if you haven't hit the benchmarks, we're going to agree that you need to shut this down and, and move on to something else. I mean, he's really, he's introducing the idea that there is a, a limit, mm -hmm. right? And he's getting them to agree that this just can't go on indefinitely with your belief, right? The mythology that you're going to be able to turn this around. Well, I, I think that that's true. And I think that he's he, he smartly understands something that... Um, 
Richard Thaler, uh, who, you know, talks about not wanting to close accounts and the losses also said that I think is, is really insightful, which is generally we don't want to quit until it's no longer a choice. Yeah. Got it. So what does that mean? Like if you take Sarah Olson Martinez, for example, the doctor that I talked about, the point that she started thinking about quitting was when she said there was a 0% chance that she would be happy. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's not really a choice anymore, right? Because like there's 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 no, like you already know you can't turn around. So in the case of startup uh, founders, they're they're willing to quit when they're out of money and they can't raise another round. In other words, when there is no choice, because there's just no way to operate the business anymore. Um, doing it any time before then is really hard, because if you do it before then, maybe it would have turned out okay. You know, and we all hear these stories about founders who are on the brink of, right. you know, death, they had $50,000 in the bank, but they kept going and somehow something happened and lightning struck and they turned it around, which is, you know, survivorship bias, because you don't hear about all the people who just ran it into the ground, right? <laughs> right. And in fact, the founders will sort of express this idea. But you know, we're doing it before I'm certain that I can't do it anymore. Um, they'll express this and they'll say kind of two things to him that he also responds life's too short for, but he'll say, they'll say, I owe it to my investors to keep going until I know there's no other choice, meaning until there's no more money. And he says, no, it's the opposite. Once you've determined that the equity is not worthwhile, that there isn't a high enough probability that this thing is actually going to change the world, you owe it to the investors to return the capital to them so that they can invest it in other things that are going to change the world and maybe other things that you yourself will do so that they can put their money into another endeavor of yours, right? When you've determined that this isn't worthwhile, it's actually you have it reversed. It's not fair to the investors to keep going until there's no money left. If you know that you can't make this work, you should return the money to them. And then they'll usually say something like, um, I owe it to my employees to keep going. Mm -hmm. Like I convinced them to come and work for me. And so I owe it to my employees to keep going. And he says, just like your life is too short, so is theirs. And you convince these brilliant people to come work for you for very little cash comp and mostly equity. And you have now determined that that equity isn't worth their time. Hmm. And it's not fair to them to keep them doing this because their life is short too. And you need to free them up as soon as possible in almost like it's a moral imperative, right? You need to free their time up as soon as possible because you know something they don't know that the equity that they're working for isn't worth it and let them go and off and do something that is going to be worth it, where they they also can change the world, which is why they signed up with you in the first place. So I think it it speaks to this idea that we often have these stories like reversed in our heads. Well, what does uh, Ron Conway say about the, I guess, the record of investors who have, you know, invested in a company where the founder kind of follows Conway's lead and return some of the money. I mean, is there a record that says, and yes, there are a lot of examples where these investors admired the brilliance of the founder and come along with you on the next, on, on the next yeah. great idea. Absolutely. And he tells people about them. Huh. I mean, the thing is that I think that we have this idea of, you know, founders are like the Mark Zuckerbergs who start something at 18. <laughs> 
But the average age of a successful founder is actually 42. Wow. So these are people who have often started other companies that they've shut down. So uh, and a good example of that is someone named Stuart Butterfield. So Stuart Butterfield's first endeavor uh, was a, 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 a company that was uh, developing a game. Um, and it he was doing this in uh, the early 2000s during the dot-com crash. So he, he was somebody who sort of couldn't raise another round, kind of ran out of runway, mm-hmm. um, ends up uh, salvaging a little piece of the game, which was a photo sharing piece of the game where you could sort of like share photos of your inventory that actually turns into Flickr, which, <laughs> right. which he it's sells a good to example. I know. Yeah. So he, he sold that to uh, Yahoo for um, I think it was Yahoo for, uh, for $25 million. Anyway, he does that. And then, you know, once his time is up with Yahoo, he leaves, but he really hadn't given up this idea of, of creating a, a multiplayer online cooperative world building game. This was really his dream. Um, and so he starts a new company called Glitch, right? And so he's sort of gathering people from the Flickr days. He actually gets like Andreessen Horowitz and, and Accel, which are two very big and well-known venture funds to, to invest in him. Um, and, he, and Glitch creates this game called Game Never Ending, which is like just a huge critic's favorite. And uh, they described it as Monty Python meets Dr. Seuss. So they loved it. They thought it was really beautiful. And he is actually collecting a lot of really diehard uh, users that are using the game over 20 hours a week. Uh, He's got 5,000 of them. The problem is that um, for that one who did use the game uh, 20 hours a week, like 95 to 99 people come try the game out, play it for seven minutes and leave. So this isn't actually going as well as it looks like it is. Um, so he's starting to feel like maybe this isn't isn't going to work out. But what they decide to do with the investors and the co-founders um, is to do a marketing push. So they start doing paid marketing, which they hadn't done prior to this. It had all been word of mouth. And they do a six-week marketing push where they actually acquire customers. They, they grow customers 6% week over week, which is like amazing. Um, and they get to the last week of this marketing push. This is in 2012 in November. And it's this huge weekend of growth. And Stuart Butterfield goes to bed. Uh, he wakes up the next morning having had a very restless night and writes a note to his um, investors and his co-founders saying, I woke up this morning with the dead certainty that glitch is over. Wow. So he shuts it down. Um, so, whoa, what happened there? Because here's the deal. He had $6 million in the bank and, and the user base was really growing. So this is very strange. His uh, investors were really taken aback. His co-founders were also quite taken aback. But as he explained it, he realized that if you were to continue to grow at that rate, it would still be 31 weeks before they would break even. Hmm. Um, And that it was absurd to assume they could keep growing at that rate because at some point you've saturated the gaming market with your ads. And uh, it was just going to become more and more expensive to acquire a single user. And so at that moment, he realized you know, in the Ron Conway sense that the equity wasn't worth anybody's time. So he wanted to shut it down at that point. So they did. Um, Now you might think, oh, the investors would be really mad at him. I mean, the investors were confused, but, you know, they accepted that he felt that it wasn't worth pursuing. Um, He felt a moral obligation and he expressed that to his employees that he had figured out that the equity wasn't worth their time. So he wanted to let them go. And now what happens? So that's very successful quitting, right? He's like doing the Ron Conway thing without someone coaching him to do it. Mm-hmm. But now what happens is he says, oh, you know, over the next two days, 
uh, trying to think about like, well, what am I going to do next? He says, oh, there's this internal communication tool that we use over at Glitch <laughs> that people really, really love. Wow. But it doesn't even have a name. Like yeah. nobody's thinking about this as a product that they're going to develop into, into uh, a big company. Um, but he says, but people love it. Like maybe, maybe I should think about that. Um, but I don't even have a name for it. So first, I, sh- I guess I should give it a name. So uh, he names it Searchable Log of All Company Knowledge. I didn't know that's what Slack for that. stood for. I know, right? So, <laughs> oh my gosh. Which is Slack. Right. And here's what happens. The investors roll their money over into it. Yeah. So, so this is a good example, right? The investors weren't pissed that they, he returned the money and decided that glitch was over. They said, if he thinks it's over, I guess it's correct to return the capital to us. We're confused. We would yeah. like to have a little bit more warning and maybe a discussion about it in advance. But- um, you know, but okay, we trust your judgment on this. And two days later, they had all rolled their capital right back into this other thing. Uh-huh. And that's normal, you know, that's more normally how it goes. There are lots of, you know, many time founders where the first one got shut down for whatever reason. And then you get the same investors back because they're investing in the person and they understand that that person is brilliant and they're probably going to find a, a great thing, at, you know, at some point on the next try. You're listening to a conversation with Annie Duke. Her new book is called Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. I want to talk to you about regret because I've been reading about Daniel Pink's research on regret and mm-hmm. his realization that, I mean, there's a lot to this, but but one of the takeaways, I guess, is that while regret feels pretty painful, that it's also a marker uh, of what we care deeply about in life. Mm-hmm. And we should be more, I guess, embracing of the idea. Here's here's my question for you. Do you think often that reluctance to quit is tied up in an overemphasis or a misunderstanding about the potential for regret? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. And in particular, in particular, it has to do with an asymmetry in uh, our aversion to that potential regret. So regret, this this anticipation of regret is tied in with a concept called loss aversion. Mm-hmm. This uh, concept comes from Daniel Kahneman, but also a Nobel laureate in economics and his collaborator, um, Amos Tversky. And Loss aversion basically says when you're considering an option that you might choose, in other words, you're considering starting something, uh, that's whether it's like a job or a stock that you might buy or whatever. When you're considering starting something, uh, we have undue focus on the possibility of loss. So uh, in other words, even if like overall, the thing you're thinking about starting would be good for you, um, if there's a chance uh, of something bad happening, it will make you reluctant to want to start it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so like uh, this, a very simple example was uh, you might prefer to uh, buy a stock that has uh, very little win associated with it, but also very little loss associated with it. So it's just like super low volatility um, over a stock that uh, has the potential for great gains but also the potential for a large loss, even if the gains very, very much outweigh the losses. The potential of like, if there's like some 2% chance that you're going to have some big loss, it's going to make you reluctant to want to start it. Okay, so that's just this idea of loss aversion, which is really 
if you think about it, regret aversion, mm-hmm. right? So this is right. what yeah. uh, Daniel Pink is referring to because what we're worried is like, I'm going to regret starting the choice because I experienced a loss, right? Now it turns out that that particular recruitment of loss aversion does have to do with things that we're considering starting. For things that we've already started, we do not recruit loss aversion in the same way. So we experience much less regret from bad outcomes or the anticipation of that regret of bad outcomes associated with the status quo, associated Mm, with things we're already doing in comparison to things that we might switch to. Because if you think about it, when you quit something, that generally means you're thinking about starting something new. And remember, loss aversion is recruited when we think about starting things. So to really clarify this, let me go back to Sarah Olston Martinez. Remember, I said to you that uh, when I asked her, what the chances were that she would be happy in her new job in her in the job that she was already in. She said 0%. But remember, she was staying in this yeah. job. The question that right. she was asking herself is, should I switch? So here you can see this tolerance for bad outcomes that are associated with the thing that you're already doing. Now, when I said to her, well, what's your reluctance? Like, why don't you want to take this new job that she had in the offing? She, she had already been offered a new job. Her answer was, because what if that job doesn't work out? <laughs> uh-huh. So that's where you can see this anticipation of regret, right? Like it's an asymmetry. So she's worried if I take this new job, which would be starting something, what if it doesn't work out? And this was actually preventing her from switching from something that she already knew she was miserable in. So when I had asked her, if it's a year from now, what are the chances that you're happy in this this job that you're in already? And she had said 0%. I followed it up with, what are the chances if you take this new job that you're happy? So I flipped the script. Mm -hmm. I I got her to not focus on the losses and the possible regret, but on the gains. And she said, well, I don't know. I mean, I guess it's like 50-50. And I said, well, is a 50% chance of happiness better than a 0% chance of happiness? And it was like, she just, it was a light bulb. She actually quit the next day. (laughs) I mean, it, it's the better the devil I know thing, right? Which That's is exactly absolutely right. not true. Not true. Because I think from as an objective observer, you say, but aren't you going to regret when you stick with something that is going nowhere, that's making you miserable? Won't you regret that too? And the answer is at the end of your life, as you look back, maybe, right? But in that moment where we're having to decide, should I stick with the thing I'm already doing or should I switch with, to something new? The regret part gets recruited into the switching part of the choice because that's the starting part of the choice. In other words, starting something new, right? The status quo thing, we don't we don't recruit regret into that decision in the same way. Right. So we might regret in retrospect that we didn't switch, but not prospectively. Prospectively, we're just worried about the regret we feel from the new thing that we might start. Hmm. Do you ever think about what might have happened if you hadn't had health problems, hadn't had to take time, what what ended up being a long time away from academics and gone into this, you know, really enriching and exciting part of your career playing professional poker, which then eventually brought you back. Uh, but with with what I assume is more experience and more wisdom to come mm-hmm. back to your academic career. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, think, thinking about range um, and that wonderful book, 
I mean, obviously, like I'm a better cognitive psychologist for having done all of this other stuff. Uh-huh. I think that there's no doubt about that. Would I have been happy as an academic? You know, I mean, these these are the hard things to say because these are what ifs, right? Um, but I was pretty happy when I was an academic. Um, you know, and I think I think probably I would have been happy. Maybe not. Maybe I would have quit at another time to leave academics and go do something else. I, I think that the the important point is that um, we can be happy doing lots of things. And if you're stuck in something where you're unhappy, not exploring those other things that you might do and giving them a try, you know, that's where we get back into that life's too short thing. So, I mean, I've thought a lot about what if I had just stayed in academic, right? And as I sort of think about that, I imagine actually kind of a happy life because I was pretty happy doing what I was doing at the time. I just found something else because I was forced to go look. But there's a lesson in that, which is it's pretty good to keep looking. <laughs> and and I'm not saying that means like you should quit your job after two months. It's It's if you're in a particular job, it's not bad to talk to recruiters. It's not bad to ask if you could participate in onboardings or trainings for other functions in your job. Like th- those things aren't a bad thing to do, right? It's it's good to sample things and try things out because sometimes you find something that's really exciting that you do actually want to switch to. You know, I, 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 I think, so I talk about, so I think ants are so instructive for this question that you asked me, like how, how do I go from what I have been happy in academics to talking about ants? But here we go. Um, uh, so ants are very interesting. They come into a new territory and they're exploring around. It's like when you leave college and you're like, what job am I going to take? Or when you're th- trying to think about which college you're going to go to and you're exploring a bunch of different options. Ants are like that when they go into a new territory they're exploring and what they're exploring for is food. They need to find a food source. So they're all scattered around and these forager ants now they'll, they'll, you know, one of them will find a food source. And when they find a food source and they start bringing that food back to the colony, they lay down a pheromone trail and that pheromone trail attracts other ants to it. And those ants then start following the pheromone trail to the food source. And if they find food there, they too lay down a pheromone trail and that becomes reinforced so that the pheromone trail becomes quite strong. And that's where we get that sort of image of ants walking in a line right? You know, single file, like the ants go marching one by one to that food source. But when you look at the colony, you'll actually find that about 10 to 15% of the forager ants aren't following the program. They they seem to be still wandering around. And you're like, well, what's the deal with this? Are they like ant anarchists? Like, what's going on? Like, why are they malingering? Um, and it turns out that they're not malingering at all. They're actually serving a really important purpose for the colony, which is they're looking for other food sources. Because the fact is that the world is uncertain and the food source that they have found that might be so great might go away. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, it's very good to have other food sources in your back pocket. And then separate from that, maybe the food source you have is pretty good, but one of those malingerers actually finds a food source that's way better. And at that point, you know, you can go find that out. And if those ants weren't still looking, you would never find out that there was a much better food source available to you. Um, And the thing is that humans are not ant-like enough. Once we get involved in something, we become focused on that. Come what may, we want to achieve that goal. Come what may. And we kind of stop exploring to the point where like, if we talk to a recruiter, well, in somewhere in our heads, we think we're being disloyal to Mm -hmm. our, 
employer. Like, even though we're not planning to quit, we're just talking, we're creating a relationship with a, with a recruiter. That's all. Because what we have to remember is, first of all, things can change on the ground, right? Like, uh, you could have new leadership come in that's toxic, or you could be in a job where you're working 80 hours a week, but you're in your twenties and you absolutely love it. But then you have kids and 80 hours a week doesn't work for you anymore. Like, isn't it good to have a backup plan to know what your options are to have explored other things in that situation? Your company might go out of business. They might do a reduction in force and have, have major layoffs. Then it's really good that you've, you've explored your other options and you've talked to a recruiter. And we need to be doing more of that because the problem is that we don't explore the landscape enough. And that makes us not understand that because we're focused on the thing we're doing, we're missing out on all of the opportunities, all the gains we could get, be getting from other things that we might be doing. So it behooves us to explore that landscape. And if we go back to Stuart Butterfield, I think we can see that so clearly because as good of a quitter as Stuart Butterfield was, I mean, he's like a champion quitter, <laughs> right? Uh-huh. Slack was under his nose for a couple of years. Wow. Why didn't he see it? Because he was developing game never ending. So he couldn't see it. He couldn't see that he had this unicorn right under his nose until he quit the other thing because he too was the opposite of ants. He found a pheromone trail and he was going along that. And it was only when the food source went away, when he quit it, that he started looking around and saying, hey, what's here? Maybe there's another opportunity. And then he found Slack. So isn't it great for him that he was able to quit so much more quickly than his co-founders would have had him do, than his investors would have had him do, because that allowed him to get to Slack so much more quickly. Right. And this is the thing that we have to remember. So when I think about my academic life, it's like I had this forced quitting. I basically got fired. Right. In some sense, my body fired me. And that allowed me to go explore this other option, which was poker, which I found a lot of happiness with. But I think I would have been happy in in academics because the food source was perfectly good. (laughs) I just happened to find someone that made me happier. That's all. Annie Duke's book is called Quit. The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Well, you know I can't quit you, baby. But I gotta put you down for a while. Yeah, you messed up my happy home, baby. You made me mistreat my only child. Yes, you know I love you, baby My love for you I can never hide Yeah, you know I love you, baby My love for you I can never hide When you hear me moaning and groaning, baby 
You know it hurts me deep down inside Yes, when you hear me moaning and groaning, baby Oh, you know it hurts me deep down inside Yes, when you hear me holler, baby Baby. 